Nixon was actually a very avid user of the Fairness Doctrine. When a news outlet might run a story that he saw as you know depicting him or his policies in a negative way, would file a Fairness Doctrine complaint. You know, the tobacco industry was a big fan of the Fairness Doctrine. That is Phil Napoli. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the question of whether journalism can help to save democracy, looking at that question through the lens of two hinge events in American history, Watergate in the 1970s and January 6th, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free. So each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. I'm really delighted to have as my guest today, Phil Napoli, who is the James R. Shepley Professor of Public Policy at Duke University and the director of Duke's DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy. He also happens to be my boss at Duke, where I am the visiting professor for 2023. And I know Phil very well and find him to be a very thoughtful and very well-informed person, particularly in his subject area, which is media regulation and how that fits into the world of public policy. I'll just mention, too, that he has testified to the U.S. Senate, the FCC, the FTC, and the Congressional Research Center. And his most recent book, one of four, is Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. He's been interviewed by Rolling Stone, Politico, and the New York Times, and now American Crisis. So why does Duke have an institution for media and democracy, and what do those things have to do with each other? I mean, I think we all kind of know intuitively that they're related, but how does media and how does the press affect democracy, and what is its role? And don't be afraid to be, uh, you know, kind of uh, professorial here, because, you know, we want that from you. Sure, sure. Uh, And not only do we have one, but we're actually had had one now for 50 years where it's the 50th anniversary of the DeWitt Wallace Center is coming up. That's that's very interesting because this whole podcast looks at sort of a 50 year trajectory that starts with Watergate in the early to mid 70s and goes up through January 6th, 2021. So that's uh, that's perfect. And what's neat about it is what is that it's in a public policy school. And that's usually the question that I get asked the most, which is, wow, why does a public policy school care about media and democracy. And the part about that that fascinates me is that the answer to that isn't obvious, that that's a question that I get so often. Why does a public, po- well, why, sh- why wouldn't a public policy school care about media and democracy? Um, because I, I'm a true believer in that notion. And it's, you know, I forget who said it first or how, but, you know, whatever your primary area of policy concern is, your secondary area of concern should be media. So if you care about health policy, as we learned in the COVID pandemic, you best care about media. If you care about education policy, you should care about media. Uh, you know, the lists can go on and on. Uh, so I, I genuinely believe that, you know, 
name an aspect of our economic or cultural life that our, our media system does not play a hugely influential role. And why, I mean, because it gets the information out to the people or is there something, is there something beyond that? Or is that just so important that that's why? Well, it is beyond that. I think there used to be, oh, we used to be able to think of it in that kind of unidirectional way. But now, right, I mean, it's so much more, you know, the, the, the information, the opinions, the viewpoints all flow in so many different directions. People are not just passive consumers, of course, right? They're active participants. Uh, and so, you know, we're watching what's happening right now, right? With this hundred million people downloading thread in a matter of days, right? Threads. Right. Uh, and, and this idea that can this focal point of political conversation that Twitter was for a period of time just migrate somewhere else? It, can it, you know, be all the hand wringing about, well, can it be the same or who will might get left out? All of that. So it's, you know, the, the days of, you know, yeah, of, uh, of our elite mainstream news media setting, you know, the political agenda um, are not completely over, but, you know, that is a very different and much more complex uh, dynamic. So now it's flowing in both directions. Indeed. And uh, well, I mean, this is a pretty uh, a black and white question, but do you think it, that's good or bad? Yeah, uh, I, I think back to there was a time when it, we all were so comfortable thinking it was good. Um, so, you know, that we thought it was good to open it up and have more voices and everything like that. Right. I, I myself am fixated on this notion. of, And I think I want to go back and study this one day to sort of how that language of the democratization of journalism, the democratization of media, you know, how that has been used over time and how you know, promise versus performance has, has netted out on that front. I mean, there's so much, you know, uh, I, I often try to describe it. I almost feel like, you know, maybe in reality, we could have pointed to a particular few years, the late, you know, late nineties, maybe right before early two thousands, pre, pre social media, where maybe we had the optimum you know, balance of, wow, well, we've, we've, broken beyond sort of the stranglehold that our, you know, select few, you know, mainstream media news outlets have had on the on the public agenda, but things hadn't fallen into the into the chaos that I, I think unfortunately we we find ourselves in now. Right. Because now we've got this incredible flow of misinformation and disinformation and bad actors and uh, harassment and all that stuff. Yep. So yep. uh you know let's Let's look back a little bit to the beginning of this this time period that I'm focusing on. Um, oh, and I I should mention too that uh, Phil and I are teaching a class together at Duke with the interesting uh, title that sounds a lot like this podcast, which is called "Can Journalism Save Democracy?" So it's uh, we're we're we've got some synergy going here. But uh, one now, one spot left. One spot left one for one student. <laughs> Just by the check time, the numbers today. By the time this podcast uh, it drops, I doubt that that spot will be left. But yeah. uh, but you never know. So let's look back at the days of Watergate. So um, you know, talk to me a little bit about what the media system was like then, and why that was such an important moment for media and democracy. I mean, what what was going on and how did Woodward and Bernstein's reporting affect that? 
Sure. And I, I think there is, right, the, the, the key frame here is is how we think then versus now about trust in our institutions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there was a point in time, that was a point in time where the, where the institution of journalism was uh, still very, very widely trusted, right? And, yeah. you know, I, and I believe it's actually true. I didn't know if this is sort of, you know, old wives tales over time or what have you, but my understanding is post Watergate applications to journalism schools skyrocket. Yeah, well, uh, I, you know, I was one uh, of those people. We were uh, yeah, absolutely. Right, right, I'm, I'm in that, the Watergate then. generation of journalists who mm-hmm. were like, wow, this is a really important and cool and glamorous and public spirited thing you could do with your life. And I yeah. mean, I think that I, you know, got at least some of that from what happened during Watergate. And you're right. The trust was right after Watergate and the Pentagon Papers, uh, public trust in the press was up in the mid seven, like 76, 75, 76 percent of the public either trusted either a, a fair amount or a great deal. And we don't we don't have that anymore. So anyway, keep going. Sure. And then, of course, obviously, given the nature of of, of, of the reporting uh, was how public trust in government was was affected. So the interesting through line there is is sort of the nature of the relationship between press and government, right? I mean, obviously, you know, that is, you know, the whole notion of of this for the state is holding government accountable. Um, and, you know, what we've watched happen, I think, over the in, in the years since uh, are so many efforts on the part, not only of government, but of other institutions to figure out ways to circumvent the press. Uh, this is one of those things that's always fascinated me over the years. We can look at things like, you know, remember the big deal it was when Clinton went on Arsenio Hall and played his saxophone yes. and it was, how dare he not go on a legitimate news show? Or how dare, you know, uh, Jerry Brown have an 800 number that you could call? How dare Ross Perot buy infomercial time? Uh, you know, that, you know, so, you know, different elections, obviously I've got the early 90s one in my head for whatever reason. Um, but each election cycle, you know, for, it seems to have always offered new ways, right, by which, uh, you know, candidates could, could circumvent the press uh, and, and Well, know. they were sort of those in those examples, these skilled politicians were treating the media, maybe not the press, but the media as a, a form of entertainment and appealing to people th- through entertainment rather than through public policy or serious, you know, speeches and things like that. Yeah, but I mean, there's some of that, but then also, uh, you know, circumventing the kind of difficult questions, right? So, you know, having, you know, I mean, that was such a fascinating uh, study done around that same time by this guy at Harvard, Thomas Patterson, who basically showed, right, that the the length of the soundbite that a elected official or a political candidate received, you know, over a 20 or 30 year period just kept shrieking and shrieking. And it was, you know, and so as from the from the government side, you were feeling like, wow, um, you know, we are, you know, becoming more and more sort of constrained in our ability to deliver our message to people, right? I mean, Ross Perot didn't do a lot of entertaining. It was him in shorts, and uh, you know, it was very low tech. And uh, if we watch those now, we'd probably be like, my God, that is dull as you know dirt. Um, so, but I think it was you know, it was about that, you know, avoiding the scrutiny. You know, right. The immediate scrutiny uh, is is a big part of it as well, and going right, going places that were going to feel more hospitable. I mean, and again, take that through to today. 
And what is more hospitable than having millions upon millions of Twitter followers who like it, repost and uh, everything that you that you spout from the your perch on the toilet there. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so it's it's the early 70s and there's a break in at Democratic National Committee headquarters. And, you know, why why did that turn into, you know, how and why did that turn into the resignation of President Nixon? And what was the role of the press in that? That is so hard to fathom, isn't it? Now, in light of all we've watched, like, you know, what a dignified thing that seems like now to to resign in disgrace. <laughs> which is, Un- absolutely uh, unheard of now. I know. Is there such a thing as disgrace anymore? Uh, so I think part of it is, I need to answer your question, actually, that's part of the answer, which was that we were culturally in in such a different, and of course, politically in such a different place where, you know, um, I'm no expert on, on Watergate, but my recollection is that, you know, Nixon actually had members of his own party telling him that yeah. this was the right thing yeah, to do. And end, so honestly, at the end, he yeah. did. Barry Goldwater was among them and basically went to right, Nixon. Right, Barry Goldwater <laughs> is telling you to resign and uh, that's, you know. And so... Uh, so the polarization factors into this? Right. I mean, is it reasonable to say that that, that would not happen? I mean, we have not seen that happen today. It, with all of the outrages of Trump, uh, the party, which he has such an iron grip on, has pretty much just sort of rallied around him. So what, you know, what's happened in the press, what's happened in the media to right. to make that happen? Is it the coming of Fox News and right wing media? Right. And how big a factor is that? Yeah, this is this is where we start to get to that interesting chicken and egg problem, right, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, you know, to what extent did polarization give rise to our partisan media versus or vice versa? Or, was, you know, it's probably some some combination, obviously. Uh, but, you know, and you know, it, I think it's important to remember, too, if you look back historically, you know, you know partisan media has, is, is not a new phenomenon. I mean, it, it's been a part of radio for a very long time. You know, the era, the fairly brief era when the fairness doctrine was in effect, it was essentially able to, you know, Wash a lot of what we would call partisan media, at least in the in the broadcast realm, in radio and TV, is in the grand scheme of things, you know, fairly short. Uh, and so, you know, just just a few decades, right? Just a couple of decades, and and you know, you look in 1989, and the fairness doctrine ends, and the trend line for the rise of talk radio stations immediately after that is is unbelievable. There's just zero. It's it's so clearly causal that it's you know it's it, you know so 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 yeah so we have a, an ecosystem that becomes so much more partisan uh, that you know again I think it provides for you know again will we ever imagine a scenario where a, a president would resign? Well, the president's always going to feel like there is a strong you know base of support. Because there's, a, you know, all he has to do or she has to do is turn to the the partisan news ecosystem, which is will be, you know, all, you know pretty unyielding in their in its support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, do you think that that's true, particularly on the right, or do you see? I mean, is there really a you know safe space for a democratic leader under fire in the mainstream or the left leaning media, or is it is it much more? 
kind of a closed system for right-wing Republicans and, you know, with Fox, Breitbart, Newsmax, all of that. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a distinct difference. Does I do, you know, do Democratic leaders get more leeway in the in the mainstream press than Republican? Probably. But, uh, you know, to some degree, <laughs> did conservatives bring that upon themselves with with how, um, you know, extreme a lot of that have become? I think I, I think that's that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but yeah, the, the way these ecosystems have developed is, is very different. Unfortunately, I think what we've seen too, you know, you know, in terms of if we're trying to sort of categorize left and right wing news outlets is that the left leading outlets have tended to play sort of a game of, of catch up. Uh, they, you know, I think the conservative media has been much more innovative, much more aggressive in, in, in making use of new technologies. Uh, throughout, through truly throughout the history of our of our of our media, mm. so it, it's you know I know you have given a lot of thought to whether you know some of the misinformation and straight up lies that have circulated on Fox News, particularly surrounding uh, the 2020 election, which have by the way resulted in a huge $787 million settlement with Dominion Voting Systems, who said they were defamed by the network, which which knew very well that the election wasn't rigged. And nevertheless, they say defamed them. And I guess Fox thinks they probably would have lost or could have lost that case because they settled at such a high number. Um, I know you've thought a lot about how to restrain Fox. It doesn't seem like uh, advertising boycotts work, you know, but I think you have a theory or an idea about what might work. So why don't you tell us what that is? Sure. So, you know, I mean, the part that has fascinated me is that here is a network carried by, you know, commercial multi-channel video programming providers all over the country, satellite providers, streaming services, cable systems uh, and from a you know corporate responsibility standpoint I'm baffled that they're comfortable still carrying that network and you know on their news tier uh, when in the language that we saw in you know in and the, and the evidence that we saw in connection with the lawsuit would suggest that this was not at all the product <laughs> that was was being delivered you know so you know so I've been hoping, you know, to see a little more corporate social responsibility rear its head. But, you know, uh, yeah, because, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to advertising, a lot of the advertising revenue goes straight to, you know, the the Fox network. But if you watch that network, right, sometimes you see that the nature of the advertisers and you can't help but ask yourself, you know, how much could these folks be really able to spend given the product that's being advertised? But the reality is the bulk of the revenue comes from the fees from the cable companies. Right. So-called carriage fees, right? The carriage fees, whether you watch Fox or not, if you have a, you know, if you are a cable subscriber, if you are a digital satellite subscriber, if you are a streaming service, Roku, you know, you name it, you know, or, um, you know, Sling uh, subscriber, um, you are paying money every month to that network, to every other, all the networks you don't watch. So the question I think is, is really, can we as, as consumers puts, uh, you know, enough pressure on some of these program providers or, 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 you know, 
could we imagine any of them? And I've been tracking this, and the answer has been no so far. Would we ever see any of them say, hmm, this is a product that we're offering that doesn't meet the quality standards that we expect and, and you know, for, for what we're paying for, and uh, therefore we're not going to carry it anymore. Right. Uh, because what you can't, and a lot of people ask this question, what you can't expect to have it, there is no regulatory intervention here. When we were talking about things like the Fairness Doctrine before, or any of the ways, uh, I think there's been a new uh, license revocation uh, petition filed regarding to some Fox stations around the country that I think they are trying to draw on how Fox has behaved as a cable news network. If you are not a, li- a broadcast licensee, the FCC can't really touch mm-hmm. you. So a, a cable news network falls outside of any of the existing regulations we have around the broadcasting of falsity. And we do have regulations preventing the broadcasting of falsity. Uh, people forget about that. But they only apply truly to broadcasting. Not to ca- which is something cable is not considered broadcast. Cable is not considered broadcast. Cable is a sort of a, a its own thing. I I often hear people say when, you know, when they're sort of maybe feeling nostalgic for a time that may or may not have existed, bring back the fairness doctrine. Um, So Mm. let's talk about that for a little bit. First of all, I'm guessing a lot of people who are listening don't know what the fairness doctrine was. So maybe you could explain that a little bit and and also answer the question of whether you think it's practical, wise, or possible <laughs> to bring it back in the way that people seem to want it to be brought back. So first of all, what 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 was it? Sure. So the Fairness Doctrine had two components to it. The first was that it required broadcast licensees, so radio and television, to cover controversial issues of public importance. I think that was the language. And the second was in covering these issues, that they were to provide access or I don't know, equivalent time to opposing viewpoints on those issues. So we were talking about you know Nixon and Watergate, before, right? Nixon was actually a very avid user of the fairness doctrine. When I mean, a news outlet might run a story that he saw as as you know depicting him or his policies in a negative way, would file a fairness doctrine complaint. You know, the tobacco industry was a big fan of the fairness doctrine. If a story ran about cigarette, a study indicated that cigarette smoking caused cancer, they would demand equal time for the opposing perspective. Um, Now, I'm I'm using some of these extreme examples, which sort of gets to what ultimately became where the fairness doctrine went wrong, right? Which was it sort of institutionalized this notion of balance. And it didn't matter whether the opposing side was, you know, how how removed from reality that opposing viewpoint might be, it was still the opposing viewpoint and would get, you know, equivalent right. time and attention. Right. So in other words, I want equal time to tell you my theory about how the earth is flat. Exactly. Exactly. And I insist on it because there's a federal law that says I get that time. Now, the language said reasonable. That word was in there. Reasonable viewpoints, which gave broadcasters, presumably, the, you know, autonomy to make some decisions about, you know, what did and what did not merit equal time. But they tended to just sort of default. They Broadcasters never wanted to deal with this, right? They didn't want to have to be engaged in this process. So much so, in fact, that that was ultimately why the FCC eliminated the Fairness Doctrine, because based on research that they did, 
they believed that, in fact, broadcasters were failing to fulfill the first part of the Fairness Doctrine obligation, which was to cover controversial issues of public importance because they didn't want to deal with the headaches, the Fairness Doctrine complaints that would come from covering controversial issues of public importance. So that's the important thing to know about the Fairness Doctrine. It was, uh, you know, it was challenged, not surprisingly, you know, in the Supreme Court uh, as unconstitutional, but by a slim margin, it survived First Amendment scrutiny. So when it was eliminated by the FCC, it wasn't because, even though the FCC did also think it was a First Amendment violation, they eliminated it on the basis of it being bad policy, that it was chilling news coverage of controversial issues. Well, I mean, today we talk, and I talk a lot about this idea of false balance, or some people call it both sides, you know, both sidesing an yep. issue in which you, you know, I guess the one that is most current and has been for a while is Donald Trump saying the election was stolen. And <laughs> are you going to give that point of view equal time, even though we know it's not true with everything else or people who say that that's ridiculous and un- untrue and unfair? Do you do you need to give that? equal time. So this idea of fairness is sort of interesting. Fairness, in my book, shouldn't mean equal time. It, it should mean the pursuit of the truth. And that's, of course, sort of subjective. But I don't see how, I guess I just don't see how taking things down the middle in that way really promotes anything except potentially in these days, uh, a bunch of falsehoods. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I'm expressing my point of view here, and I actually am interested in yours, but would you bring back the Fairness Doctrine if you could? No. In fact, I've written about that. You know, you pointed out so a couple of things that are important. First of all, the whole notion of fairness can essentially be weaponized. Uh, but you take these words, fairness, balance, objectivity, too often they're all sort of treated as kind of synonymous, uh, but, they, but they shouldn't be, right? Ob- you know, objectivity... You know, again, a term that people have issues with today, but, you know, objectivity and balance are not the same thing. Right. Right. You know, so I have to give this side and that side equal coverage. That's that's, you know, that's different from objectively assessing a situation and and making decisions about what what does and what does not merit coverage. But, yeah, so in the wake of January 6th, it was very interesting because we we studied this. We saw references to the fairness doctrine on Twitter and on search terms skyrocket. And people were as as oh you know with the you know as a, the lesson so for some people the lesson of January sixth was that we need to figure out a way to a bring back the fairness doctrine to figure out a way to apply it uh, to social media uh, which was you know they never even applied to cable how would we ever get it to apply to social social media so there's the mechanics of I'd it I'd like to I'd like to know who would be in charge of enforcing that or even keeping track of it can you imagine right exactly so it's it's crazy. But the platforms themselves, in some cases, have, you know, someone did a study once, for example, of Google News, and it seemed to indicate that Google News was sort of operating under its own kind of internal fairness doctrine. And so, you know, always having, you know, opposing, so, you know, to, to, again, in identifying examples where, wow, the opposing viewpoint is pretty, you know, extreme and not grounded in fact, but there it was anyway. Right. Uh, so there was almost too much of a, you know, what you have to worry about most is sort of a passive kind of or sort of mechanical approach to implementing the fairness doctrine. You know, broadcasters sort of failed with it. Um, I cannot imagine 
that social media platforms would would, would perform better. Right. Uh, but it it certainly did have its effect of 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 chilling a lot of partisan you know programming in in the broadcast sector. Yeah. So you don't think that the way it was structured in the seventies and eighties makes any sense now? And it, do you think that some do you favor any kind of government regulation that would, you know, including of the social media platforms that would hold them responsible for lies and hate and harassment that happens there? Or should First Amendment free speech issues prevail and anything goes? Or is there is there something in between? Right. Yeah. I, I you know. What that in between looks like, I think, is is the is the tricky part because we really don't want, and that's what we saw at the tail end of the of the Trump administration. We started to see a lot of regulatory interventions being proposed, uh, and we've seen this happen a bit in Florida, and we've seen it happen in Texas. You know, where sort of mandated, you know, passivity, mandated balance, however you want, you know, essentially restricting platforms' rights to filter the content that they host uh, to turn them more into truly neutral platforms, something closer to what they were in their earliest days. If we go back to that, I mean, now we are sort of going back to that, unfortunately, anyway, as we're watching these platforms as their finances, um, you know, you know, return to earth, you know, this is what's getting cut. A lot of the uh, content moderation folks and a lot of the privacy and security type of folks. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, just to segue a little bit to the world of college education and what I'd <laughs> like to ask you, and I'm sort of wrapping up here a little bit, what you think every college student should know about the role of the press and, and government? I mean, what are, the, what are the, the key things that you'd like our students and all young people to know about and you know, are there any are there any major texts, uh, whether they're biographies or or mm-hmm. actual, you know, textbooks like what? You know, give us the basics. What would you like people to absolutely know before they go out and act as American citizens in the world? Sure. And, and a lot of this, especially these days, is is generational. Right. So we are, you know, if you think about an 18 year old now and the kind of media ecosystem they grew up in. I think one of the, you know, again, this might seem kind of remedial, but that they need to understand journalism is not information. Like, in other words, yes, there's news and information out there you could access, but what a journalist does and what the, what journalism brings to the table is something above and beyond that, right? Which is analysis, investigation. Uh, this was really hit home for me. We just finished up some focus groups in, in, in Durham. And we were asking people, what is their primary sources of local news and information? Overwhelmingly, see if you could guess, overwhelmingly one source. TV news. Neighborhood listservs. Neighborhood listservs. Wow. Neighborhood listservs. Oh, and, and, and for me, again, the takeaway here is, and, you know, the perception of most, a lot of these folks we, we, we met with, which was like, yeah, this is great. It's vetted. There's somebody deciding and, 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 and for me, it was like, you know, hopefully for you too, you're like, wait, that's not journalism <laughs> that, you know what I mean? That's, you know, uh, but it's a, it's, so I I'm, guess it's but, citizen journalism in a sense. 
yeah, but even there, it's, you know, yeah, this tree is down. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of useful information there. Absolutely. Right, but does it hold but, government accountable know, in the way that the press exactly. is supposed to do? I would argue it does not. And other institutions, right? So so as as our the ecosystem evolves, so and I, what I worry about today with young people, with students, is that those distinctions are not being made, you know, and are not as obvious. I mean, and it's not their fault. I mean, you know, when you navigate, one of the other you know things we do a lot of research on are these crazy, um, you know, mostly bogus, you know, hyper local news sites that you know are generating you know auto generated text, and you know they're just clickbait machines, and they they pose as a local news source even though there's not a single local reporter within miles of this thing. That there's no human beings running this thing, and it looks like thousand other sites that exist in a thousand other towns and 90% of the content across the ball is identical. You know, young people, you know, that aren't necessarily aware, right, of of of, of these important distinctions. So I want, you know, when we have you know, people who want to be journalists, you know, we want them to understand what is the value add that they bring to the equation. What are those skills? And that's where it goes to my other pet peeve, right? It's going back to the notion of democratization that we started with. Nothing pissed me off more than how much over the past decade and a half, how if I heard people say, now everyone's a journalist. Isn't this great? Hate that. Well, it's just not true. Even if they were to go and sit at a city council meeting, uh, they're not really, in almost all cases, armed with the know-how to to challenge, to dig into something uh, and to present it to the public. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for your great thoughts and uh, for being such a wonderful colleague. And we'll, uh, we'll hope that the answer to can journalism save democracy is a heartfelt yes, but the jury's still out, I guess. Yep. Thank you, Phil. Oh, thank you. So the thing that I really was interested in talking to Phil Napoli about was the fairness doctrine, because it's something that people constantly say to me would solve all of our problems in media. And I think Phil, who has really studied this, brings up how flawed an idea that would be and how even at the time that it was in practice, it was a flawed kind of idea. And uh, I think he pretty much dismisses the notion of bringing it back today. And I think he does so pretty persuasively. Phil also was so interesting, I thought, on the sort of double-edged sword of social media, which he has studied a lot, and how it both democratizes our media and introduces tremendous amounts of disinformation and what the best way to address that is. I also was very interested to hear about the research that Phil and his colleagues have been doing in Duke's own community, Durham, North Carolina, where they've been looking into how people get their news. His question to me about, you know, just asking me to guess what the main source of people's, you know, regular people, I guess we can say what their main source of news is, at least in his focus groups. And I guessed TV news, which I thought was a pretty reasonable guess based on my own knowledge and research. And he came back and said, no, it's actually neighborhood list serves. And of course, what bothers him about that is that people tend to think that they're absolutely accurate and that they're vetted and that they're journalism. 
And while they may be useful, they're really none of those things. So I think he introduced some kind of worrisome things, but also um, is basically optimistic and I think would be quick to say that journalism can, in fact, help to save democracy. So we're glad for that. Coming in two weeks is my conversation with Steve Inskeep, who you probably know as the host of NPR's Morning Edition, but who also is a wide-ranging author. Um, And his most recent book is Differ We Must, which looks at how Abraham Lincoln managed to navigate a very divided America. It has some lessons for us today. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis Experience on my Substack, Margaret Sullivan at Substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.